Happy New Year. Last, uh, I guess before I say that, you know how like when you maybe have a birthday or perhaps it is like a new year and begin to kind of evaluate what's changed? Well, I went, I went snowboarding yesterday um, and the mountains like finally got enough snow. It's getting a little bit nicer. And so I went with Ashley and I went with Quintino uh, and uh, we had an absolute blast. But I have to say that today my knees are like on fire. <laughs> and I, it would be apparent to me that at some point in this past year, my knees got a little bit weaker. <laughs> and so I don't know what happened to you guys. Maybe you learned something awesome about yourself in 2024 so far, but I've learned that I need to stretch my knees. <laughs> if, if I want to keep going snowboarding until I'm really old, I'm going to have to take care of, you know, going to have to make sure that I'm strong enough. <laughs> Uh, but I, we had a blast. Uh, actually, I had a good week overall. This past week, we went to a retreat on Quadra, and this retreat was for uh, four square churches uh, across the island. Uh, and so there was pastors who I'd never really met uh, coming from different churches uh, down south um, and up north on this island, connecting and talking about church ministry. Uh, and uh, I found this to be really fun. I, I didn't grow up as a part of a four square church, and I haven't pastored in a four square church until Gateway. And so these were new friends of mine, and they became just that, friends. And, and, I, and I would come to say that it'd be apparent to me after this retreat, meeting with these different pastors and their families, that God's been up to something really cool in our community, right, on this island. And I'm proud to say that Gateway's a part of that. Uh, I, I had an absolute blast. We, I had an absolute blast. We were blessed to feel like we were part of that family. They became quick friends. Uh, and um, I guess beyond that, I'd say that we're blessed to be part of this church. I probably don't talk about this much, uh, but, but, but since coming to Gateway, I would say that we've been like well-received, right? You have been a super welcoming church, super loving, super caring. Ashley and I continue feel the love. And I'd say that we love you too. We truly love our church. It's wonderful to be a part of this community. Now, I'll stop gushing here because we've got, we've got some scripture to work through. We've been in the book of what? The book of Romans. And this week, we're opening up chapter 8. And chapter 8 is a bit of a doozy. It's going to take us a few weeks to get through chapter 8. Um, and today, we're going to be covering the first 17 verses. And so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm actually going to read through the scripture uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up right there. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. I'm going to read right through the scripture, and then what we'll do is we'll kind of break that down kind of verse by verse or a couple verses at a time into kind of bite-sized pieces just for the sake of understanding. You with me? You ready? All right. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Church, I'm going to pause before I get to the rest of the 16. Can you read just that first verse with me? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but live according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. See, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life, is peace. 
The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. Pause, church. Does the Spirit of God live in you? I hope he does. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. Church, are you a child of God? Me too. Let's keep reading. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. Dear God, we need your help when we read your word. We long to hear from you. We long to know what it is that you want to say to us. God, we thank you that we can be your children. We thank you that you want to redeem us, that you want to forgive us, that you want to welcome us into your home, into your kingdom, into your plan. God, I pray that as we take time to work through your word this morning, God, I pray that you would bless us, that you'd open our eyes in such a way that we'd be able to look into our lives and see things like you see things, that we might be able to make changes to rearrange the furniture in our hearts so that we might be more in line with how you want us to live. God, we cannot do this on our own. We thank you that we don't have to do this on our own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So Paul begins this chapter with a verse that for many people is probably, very likely, their favorite verse in all of the Bible. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a way to kick off the chapter, right? And why is this significant? Think that through. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant. Remember, we're reading a letter here and we're in the eighth chapter of that letter. It's significant because in the first seven chapters of this letter, Paul has been telling us, Paul's the author of this letter, he's been telling us that we're condemned. So all of a sudden, this is kind of new information, and this is where things kind of become really significant. He, he's been showing us that the law has a right to condemn us, right? And not only does the law have a right to condemn us, but my actions and your actions and Paul's actions by admission bring that about, right? We're pretty good at this sin thing, aren't we? Right? It comes easy for us. And so that's kind of what he's been talking about. And, and the law by design catches us and it condemns us. So when Paul just kind of drops this bomb and he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we're just like, wow, well, that's a big deal. That's amazing, right? And, and it kind of like leads the question as to what does this mean? And Paul elaborates in verse two. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. Now, to understand this, this verse, and, and this might be a little bit confusing as we've been making our way through Romans, and so I want to clarify something. You see, when Paul uses the word law here in verse 2, he's no longer talking about the law of Moses, right? He, he's not talking about that, that Mosaic covenant in this particular instance here. Now he's using the word law to describe a power that's over you. And whether you like it or not, the law has power over us. In this instance, I, I would kind of compare it maybe to like the law of gravity has power over you. Does that make any sense? So if, if you jump out the window, right, the law of gravity will inevitably have power on you. You won't just float, right? You're not going to make it to the neighbor's house unless they're really close and you're a good jumper, right? The law of gravity takes its effect and it will bring you to the ground fast, so it's not the Mosaic law that he's making reference to here in earlier chapters or will continue to make reference to throughout this chapter. He's talking about a power that's over you. In fact, let's replace the word law with the word power. Let me read it in such a way. Because through Christ, Jesus, the power of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the power of sin and death. Does that make sense? There's a power that's taking place. And I love this. Paul is pointing out the power of the spirit. And this is where there's a bit of shifting of gears that takes place in this letter, and it's wonderful. This is going to be kind of the focal point of Paul's message here. We've been dealing with the weakness of the flesh. Who here has like a weak flesh? And I don't mean like you get cut easy. I mean like it's easy to sin, right? Like it's easy for us to just kind of fall into temptation. As it comes our way, and it comes our way often, we have a weak flesh, if you've been with us lately, you'll remember in chapter 7, Paul's been expressing his inability to do as he wants because the power of the flesh is weak. He wants to do good, but sin just wins his heart. Who can relate? Me too. At the end of chapter 7, Paul ends the discussion with his arms raised in desperation. I don't know if he did, but I picture he did. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Church, would you read this with me? What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And it's here in chapter 8 that Paul begins to kind of make this dramatic shift of thought. And the answer to the question of who's going to save you and I is the Holy Spirit. Paul's going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit and the life of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. He'll make reference to the Spirit about 20 times in this chapter. So let's get to it. Verse 3, he says, For what the law, now he's transitioned back to talking about the Mosaic law, the law of Moses, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Let me pause. What's he mean? Now remember, there's, there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses, Right? Paul already dealt with that question a few times so far in the chapters kind of leading up to this point. The, the problem's not with the law. The law is good. But Paul's explaining that the law is weakened. What's it weakened by? It's weakened because his flesh couldn't follow it. And neither could mine. The law says do that. The law says do this. The law says don't do that. The law says don't do this. But our flesh just can't measure up. Our flesh just consistently falls short over and over again. We can't measure up and we fail. So our flesh weakens the ability of the law to actually cause change in us. 
right? The law doesn't operate in that way. The law tells you how to live, but it doesn't empower you to live in such a way. And I've said over and over in these kind of past few sermons that the law and legalism just don't have an operating change in our lives. That's not how they work. And I keep repeating this because as the body of Christ, we keep repeating the error, the thinking that the law or the thinking that legalism can be the answer. And it's just not. We keep repeating that error. How many times have we you know, kind of relied on rules to get us through over the years, right? If you think about the history of Christianity or maybe even in your own personal life, it can be very easy to be attracted to the set of rules and the set of way to kind of live your life. And it just doesn't work, and it never will work. It's only through the power of God's spirit that you and I can live the Christian life, only. It isn't by this set of rules that we make ourselves justified. It is only through the power of God's spirit that you and I can live the Christian life. Rules don't work. All they do is tell you what you should do, but you can't. And if you can remember, Paul spoke to this trouble at great length in, great, in, in chapter 7. Remember what he said? He says, I do not understand what I do. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. These words mean so much to me because they're just such a constant reminder of my situation, of my life. And I'm like, Paul, me too, with like tears in my eyes. Paul says here that God has done what the law couldn't do. And how did he do it? Through the Spirit, which we'll talk about more deeply about in just a moment. But he goes on to say in the second half of verse three, he says, God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Now I want you to notice something here that's really important. Jesus didn't come as sinful flesh. Right? He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because he was sinless, God was then able to put the penalty on Jesus. But Jesus being sinless is very important information. Why is it important? Because if he sinned, he would have to pay for his own sin. But he didn't, and he was able to bear someone else's sin, my sin and your sin. He was free to pay or yours because he did not have of his own. You see, when you have a debt and you want to pay off that debt, that you would go and you'd pay that debt. But let's say in the meantime, you've got this debt and you want to pay off somebody else's debt, right? And you go to the bank and you say, hey, I want to pay off someone else's debt. They'd say, no, you have to pay off your own, right? Our debt belongs to us uh, and we ha- that's our responsibility. And you'd be disqualified from paying someone else's debt because of the debt you own yourself, But that's kind of the way that it is with sin as well. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like us, but he was not like us, was he? He was sinless. Therefore, he could take on, he could bear our sin. He could take it for us. Do you understand that Paul just sort of answered the original uh, question here as to why we're no longer under condemnation? Remember how we started the chapter? He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Is it because God just decided he didn't care anymore? Is it because God decided that he just wasn't in this condemning business anymore? And he's like, you're off the hook. No, it's, it's because Jesus bore the condemnation. Something took place. Something happened. It was paid. But it doesn't just end there. Look at verse four. 
He says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This here is really amazing to me. You see, people might accuse Christians of not living the righteous life, right? Perhaps you've been accused yourself, or you've just heard someone say that Christians don't actually do a good job of following this law that you're supposed to live. Christians don't do a good job of living the Christian life. Maybe you've even thought to yourself, yeah, Christians don't do a really good job, to which I'd say that you are right. I want you to notice Paul did not say the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us by us. He said they're fully met in us. And I think this is really important because legalists would believe that the requirements of the law are fully met by themselves, upon their own efforts, upon them doing a really good job of following the rules. Their actions would pay that price. But we don't believe that. We believe that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us by God. That it is not on my efforts and that it is not on your efforts that we are then righteously following the law because we can't. We we will consistently fail at this. We will consistently mess this up. It is through God's work in our hearts. It is through the Spirit. And as we walk and keep in step with the Spirit, He cleanses us. He represents us. He bears that for us. So what's the point of all of this? The point of all of this is that it's the work of the Spirit. It is not in any way a result of our own actions and a result of our own obedience. You do not keep the righteous requirements of the law by your obedience. You just don't. You can't. You might try, but you will fail. The only way the righteous requirements of the law can be kept is by the Spirit in you, through you, and the person of Jesus living in your life. So how is it that the Spirit fulfills the requirements of the law? Well, it centers around something Paul talks about in this chapter, and that is the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. And I don't know why Christians have gotten so far away from the Holy Spirit. It's like we're afraid of it. And I'd ask the question, why in the world would we be afraid of the Holy Spirit? You've probably noticed that in some churches, maybe it's even happened in this church before, that we've factored out the Holy Spirit completely. It's as though people get scared of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They think that things might get out of control or things might get wacky or things might become weird in such a way. Maybe it's just me, but my opinion would be that perhaps we should be more willing to relinquish control for the sake of the Holy Spirit being in control in our churches. Perhaps we should be more willing to relinquish control so that the Holy Spirit can be more in control in our living rooms in our lives, in our workplaces. Living in the Spirit is not what many think it is. It's not living in utter craziness. It's it's not chaotic, senseless behavior. Living in the Spirit is peace, joy, understanding. Living in the Spirit is empowerment for ministry in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss this, so would you read this with me? Living in the Spirit is peace, joy, and understanding. Living in the Spirit is empowerment for ministry in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's not chaotic. It's not senseless. I mean, you might notice that if someone is living in the Spirit, that you don't understand everything that they do 
or everything that they say, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the spirit is senseless. Perhaps it's that we don't always understand what God's up to. And so I want you to remember something about the Holy Spirit. Remember how we've been talking about the requirements of keeping the law? How does the Holy Spirit in us keep the requirements of the law? Think that through. How does he do that? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit is God inside of us, Jesus inside of us. The Holy Spirit is God. He is spotless. He is free of any sin or darkness. The Holy Spirit acts in the strengths of God the Father and the Son, Jesus, such as omniscience, such as omnipotence and eternality, right? The Holy Spirit is all loving, forgiving, merciful, just. As a member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit has no beginning and the Holy Spirit has no end. That means that he was there with God, with the Son, before creation, right? We don't need, we, we, we shouldn't mess this up. The Holy Spirit serves a role as teacher, counselor, comforter, strengthener, inspiration, revealer of the scriptures, convincer of sin, caller of ministry, and intercessor in prayer. We are not scared of the Holy Spirit around here. We welcome him gladly. So the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Jesus is now living in you. Just take a moment. The Spirit of God lives in you. What did Jesus do when he came and he lived this perfectly righteous life? Well, he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, but guess who lives inside of you now? Jesus. Jesus lives inside of you through the person of the Holy Spirit. So guess how God looks at you now? As having fulfilled the requirements of the law. Why? Because you and Jesus are one in spirit. That's a crazy idea, I know, and I promise I'm not speaking heresy. Paul even said it himself in 1 Corinthians he says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Would you read that with me? Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Do you believe that? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, you know when you're falling short, you know when you're looking at your life and you're recognizing that there's this sin and there's this way of life that sort of kind of catches you off guard and you find yourself thinking in temptation, you find yourself acting in temptation. Do you recognize that you are one with him in spirit, that Jesus lives in you. You are one with Christ in spirit, and he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law perfectly so that you didn't have to because you couldn't anyway. We need the spirit. I know we're all sitting here and we're being polite, right? But if this truth really got a hold of our hearts... <laughs> And it really got a hold of our minds and impacted us in such a way. I don't think that, I don't think it would be a normal reaction to be like, oh, cool. <laughs> right? A normal reaction would be like tears in our eyes and just like exuding joy, maybe dancing on the chairs. Please don't. <laughs> right? I'm just getting at the point that this is really amazing. That we can recognize that perhaps we don't, so we can become desensitized to some of the truths in the Bible. And I'd encourage you to not become desensitized to this truth, that God is in you. And it is okay if you're feeling overwhelmed by that. It is okay if that captures your heart. It is okay if you feel like you are unworthy. Because we're not. It's a gift. And it's amazing. And it's wonderful. Truly wonderful. 
This changes everything, by the way. What you and I couldn't do has now been done, and he lives in us. He's actually inside of you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Let me say that again. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. But there's more. He's now able to empower us as well. It's not just that Jesus lives in us and that he fulfills those requirements of the law, but he enables us to live according to the law. Now, does that mean that we would walk around living like Old Testament Jews? No, that's not what it means. First of all, we're under a completely different covenant, right? We really need to make that distinction. We're not under the Mosaic covenant anymore, right? Can we just settle that issue once and for all? I think we've dealt with this so many times through Christianity's history where we keep coming back to the law and the specifications of the law and heaving that on Christians, and we just don't need to do that. The Holy Spirit is now living in you and now can enable you to live the life that is keeping with the law. How? Paul wrote about it in Galatians. Let me show you. Galatians 5 verse 14 says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, didn't Jesus say something similar? Right? When they challenged Jesus with, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So love God and love your neighbor. And guess what? The power of the Spirit, who's now come to live inside of you, can help you do just that, because we don't serve that old law. We serve a new law, and what's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. So what does the Spirit help you do? Love God and love your neighbor. It helps us to really do this, and as we do this, we live according to the law. We fulfill the law in the essence of what it is, because when we love God and when we love our neighbor, that's the law. That's the law right there, so that's why he says, when we, walk, when we walk according to the Spirit, we then fulfill the law. Now, obviously, I'm not done walking according to the flesh. I wish that I was, but I'm just not. But when I'm walking according to the Spirit, this is what's going on, and it's beautiful. To walk in step with the Holy Spirit is amazing. It will change your life. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not constantly walking with the Spirit. In fact, I think I might be walking with the flesh a lot lately. I think I might be way more familiar with what it's like to walk with the flesh than what it's like to walk with the Spirit. What then? This is such a good question, and I love that the Word of God has a good answer for us, because the truth is we mess up past, present, and future. It's just not going away, right? But when we do when we mess up, we can turn to Jesus, who was condemned on the cross for our sake, right? And we can find forgiveness because the Bible says his blood keeps on cleansing us. It's perpetual. It happens over and over and over again. It's continual. First John 1, 8 to 9 says this. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Not some, 
not just a little bit, not most, all unrighteousness. There's this constant cleansing that goes on in the life of a Christian. You see, once you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're covered, right? Your sin, past, present, and future is covered. I hate to break it to you, but if you were wondering what it's like to come to Jesus and you thought, oh, does that mean I'm gonna stop sinning? That's not how it works. (laughs) Welcome to the group, Right, this is a constant struggle that we all have before before we met with Jesus and after. The Spirit makes a difference; it really does. But we will not win this fight completely on our own. It is only by the Spirit that we are saved, that we are justified. Remember, justified, just as if I never sinned. Know that you are forgiven if you have the Spirit of God in your heart. And when we sin, we say, God, what I did was wrong. Please forgive me. And he forgives us. We're constantly cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And this is amazing. This is glorious. Look at verse five. We're gonna read through a couple verses here. He says, those who live according to the flesh, it's us sometimes, right? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Listen, it is impossible to be single-mindedly focused on the flesh and to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. That is impossible. That task is something that we just cannot do because we'd be focused on gratifying the flesh. And the flesh is just this constant deterrent, this constant go this way instead of this way. It's just like this detour, in a sense, from living a life that's pleasing to God. It goes in the opposite direction. And there's no way you can live a life that's pleasing to God when you're living in such a way. You just can't do it. But Paul says in verse 9, he says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. This would be a do not that's worth looking into. That's worth focusing on for the sake of your life. Paul is saying that if the spirit of God isn't living within you, then you are not a Christian. You're not a believer. It'd be as simple as that. It is the Spirit of God that makes us a child of God. The Spirit gives you birth into God's kingdom. It is by his power that you and I are born again. So if the Spirit isn't living within you, then you're not born again. But the reverse is true. If you're born again, the Spirit is living within you. And if the Spirit is living within you, then, 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 the, then you, can't, you can't be serving the flesh anymore. There's, there was a reversal that takes place. If the spirit is living within you, then you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit because you have the spirit living within you. Now, does that mean that we stop serving the flesh? Does that mean that we stop living in such a way that we're paying attention to the needs and the desires of our flesh? No, I wish, I wish it meant that. But as you're well aware, and as I am well aware, we are still very capable of walking according to the flesh. But just because we're still very capable of walking in such a way 
that does not negate the fact that we are children of God and the spirit of God lives within us. Let me switch gears here for a moment. It's interesting. The work of the spirit whereby the law is fulfilled for you and I, God actually talked about this in the Old Testament too. Right? We think of this new covenant and what it entails for us and what it offers us as kind of a New Testament truth. But this was a part of the plan all along. It was talked about in the Old Testament too. Check it out from this passage in the book of Jeremiah. This is actually, in my opinion, one of the greatest passages in the whole Bible. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hands to lead them out of Egypt. It will not be like that covenant. Because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now at this time, this is years before Jesus was even born. Many, many hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And this, this aspect of scripture would have been a little bit of a mystery. But, but before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his disciples that power would come upon them and that they were to wait and pray. The power Jesus was referencing was that of the Holy Spirit. And when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples shortly after Jesus' ascension, everything changed. Everything. Paul often refers in his writings to the law being written on our hearts. We've talked about this a few times so far in Romans and even a little bit in, in 2 Corinthians. He's explaining that the Spirit of God is living in us. That's what he's getting at. The lawgiver has come to live in us, and that is where our power comes. The original law was written on stone tablets, by the way. God doesn't do anything by mistake. I think it's important to recognize that this original law, remember the Ten Commandments being written on stone tablets, that stone is nothing like our flesh, right? It's completely external to us. Stone is what? Stone is cold, stone is hard, and there shouldn't be stone as a part of the body. It's like God's getting at something here. Everything changes when the Spirit of the living God comes to dwell inside of you. Being on your, written on your hearts as opposed to being written on stones feels a lot more personal. And there's a difference that takes place as well, right? That, that law that was written on stone tablets was impossible to follow. But the law that's written on our hearts, albeit impossible for us to follow on our own, now means that we have God inside of us. The lawgiver has come to live inside of you. So my question for you is simple. Do you have the Holy Spirit living within you? Does he indwell in you? If you do, what is he telling you? What is he saying to you? Because the lawgiver is now one with you. He can apply his wisdom to anything in your life, any situation, any question, any circumstance, any question. What does it mean to follow the Spirit? It means to listen and it means to obey to listen for conviction. God is so faithful to bring conviction if we simply take time to listen. Conviction is that still small voice that says, don't click that link. That's not a good one. Go elsewhere, leave the room. 
Conviction is that still small voice that says, you know this conversation you're having? It might have started off well, but it's led into gossip. I need to leave. You need to stop. This has to end. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the conviction that says to you personally, I love you, but you haven't picked up your Bible in days. And right now you're spiritually just malnourished. And you know, as well as I know, the Spirit convinces us that if we were to be attacked, if the devil were to come and to tempt us, that on such days we'd get trampled. And the, and the Spirit is like, you know it. You know that it's true. You know that you haven't been picking up the word of God. You know that you haven't been in a place where you're building up your faith. And if you were to be attacked, you'd fail right now. That's what the Spirit does, that still, small voice. The Lord convicts us, and he tells us that if the enemy attacked you, he'd beat you up. And you know it because you haven't been strengthening yourself. That's the voice of conviction. When we're listening or maybe we're watching something on TV or perhaps on the radio, and you know, you just know in the bottom of your heart that what it is that you're doing is not good, what it is that you're kind of filling your body is not good, and the Spirit comes to convict and says, why are you filling your mind with such junk? This is like candy. It'll rot your teeth. There's no nutritional value here at all. But do we listen? Do we listen to the Spirit of God when he speaks to us? Do we respond to that still small voice, the lawgiver living within us, talking to us about every situation that life and sin may bring in our path. You see, there's no law that can cover all things. No list of law can cover all things. In fact, I think that the like original law, as it was adjusted and added on to, ended up having like 613 laws or something like that, right? Can you imagine trying to memorize 613 laws? What's interesting about those 613 laws is they wouldn't even address all of the complications of sin in our society today. You and I know that things have changed, right? But that, that, that list of laws would probably be like around, I don't know, 12,000 by now and still not good enough. Do you hear me? No law can cover all these things, but the Spirit of God can. And that's why Paul wrote to the Galatians. I love this verse. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You know why? Because the law can't touch everything. Only the Spirit can. The law can't cover all the possibilities of faithful living, but the Spirit of God can. Do you understand, by the way, that what you have in Christ is so much more superior to the external law? Right? Don't ever look back on the Old Testament and think like, oh, those were the good old days. Right? Don't think to yourself that that's when they had it like easy or that was really good. What you have is so much more superior. What they had was the law of God on tablets of stone. And by the way, just a little tangent. Remember Moses comes down the mountain, right? The law was just given to him, right? It's like hot off the press, right? And then what does he see? Right? He sees like unfaithful living and then he just breaks the tablets. He throws them on the ground and they shatter, right? The people haven't even read them yet, right? And they're already broken, I think, as they, I think as he breaks them, it's symbolic that they were broken before they were even read, right? What we have is so much better. You have the lawgiver living in your heart in dynamic relationship every day. I think Paul wants to point out some other blessings here. Let's keep reading. We're in verse 10. It says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness, our righteousness, 
No. (laughs) The Spirit of God represents us. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you, not because of anything that you've done, because of his spirit who lives in you. This is cool. This is where it gets fun. He's talking about the fact of the resurrection, and that's a blessing from you, and that's a blessing for you. This is God's final work of redemption, when our bodies are glorified like his wonderful body. And then he says in verse 12, he says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, say that word with me, obligation. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. And I think this is so important. He says we're in debt, right? We're obligated. That's what it means to be obligated. But it's not to the flesh. If, if, if you're in obligation, you're in debt. That means that you owe someone. He says you owe someone, but it's not the flesh to live according to it. But the flesh kind of feels a little bit differently about this, right? The flesh would say to you, you know, we've got a longstanding relationship of you kind of bowing to me. The flesh is like, you know what, you're probably used to it by now, and you should probably continue to be used to it because this is the way that we are going to live your life, right? The flesh likes to kind of take ownership of you. The flesh kind of says to you, you know what, I know you want to live a different way, but you can't. You're trapped. You're just stuck this way. The flesh can kind of lie to you, and it it kind of has this obligation, says, you owe me. And Paul says, you have to break that voice. That's a lie. We may be obligated, we may be in debt, but we are not obligated to the flesh anymore. That debt has been paid in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, paid in full done. And you can look to the flesh, you can look to the temptation of the devil, and you can say, I owe you nothing. I've been bought. I am not yours. I am under no obligation to the desires of the flesh anymore. Verse 13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So how do you put to death the kind of needs of the flesh? By the Spirit. He doesn't say, well, if you grit your teeth and if you try really hard and if you listen to all the commandments and if you listen to what your mother and your father said, right? If you just try, if you try, if you try, it's not what he says. It is only by the Spirit. You can't do it by yourself. You can only do it in him. Verse 14, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And we, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. By the way, living by the law can never set you free. Or pardon me, living by the law can never set you free from fear. Because if you live by the law, you'll never know that you've measured up. You'll never know that you've become acceptable in such a way. Listen, you haven't been given a spirit of fear to live in this constant dread whether you've made it or not, whether you've measured up or not. That's not how things work. There's other faiths out there, by the way, some even like attached to the Christian faith that would say otherwise, but that is just not correct. It's not biblical. It doesn't even make sense within the context of anything scriptural. That's just not how this works. You haven't been given a spirit of fear where you have to live in this constant dread. That's not what you've been given. The spirit of life in you is the spirit of peace. 
the spirit of confidence in him. Not a confidence in yourself, but a confidence in the living God who loves you and wants to save you. The spirit who in verse 16 says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He doesn't just wanna save you, he wants to welcome you into his family, into his kingdom, into his very home. That's the kind of God we serve. And in closing today, I wanna read verse 17 together. Can you get it for us, verse 17? It's at the bottom there. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. See, Romans 8, 17 is this transitional bridge that sort of reaches back to the previous verses and the previous aspects of this chapter, talking about what it means to be a child of God, but it also reaches forward in the chapter to address the sufferings of this present world. You see, as children of God, listen close, we suffer with Christ in this present life, right? It isn't easy being a Christian. It wasn't designed to be easy to be a Christian. If you were thinking it was going to be easy, I'm sorry for whoever lied to you. As a child of God, we suffer with Christ in this present life and we look ahead to the glory that we will one day share with him. He has welcomed us as fully adopted children. We have full access to his kingdom. There is no greater gift. This is where we'll close today. My question for you is simple. That's slide 28. Are you a child of God? Really think that through. Remember the implications of what we just read? Are you a child of God? Because if you're not, I would love to take the time after the service today to meet with you, to talk with you about what it means to be a child of God. I wouldn't have a greater joy with how to spend any aspect of the rest of my day. If that's you, please come talk to me. By the way, if you are a child of God, don't forget what it means to be a child of God. He's adopted you into his family on purpose and he loves you and he cares for you deeply. Church, would you stand with me? If I, I forgot to call our worship team forward, but would you stand with me? Let's worship the King of Kings. Let me pray. God, did we take time to recognize what it's like to be your children? We say thank you. We put our confidence in you. We don't put our confidence in ourselves by any means at all. We trust and we lean into your spirit as our leader, as our counselor, as our comforter. And God, we say we cannot do this on our own. Might you continually lead us. Might we continually listen and obey what it is that your spirit has to say to us in our hearts. We need you, Lord. We trust in you completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're gonna worship for a little bit here and then today we're gonna to celebrate communion. And so even just here and now in your hearts through worship, I want you to be kind of asking the question, God, what is it that you're saying to me? Right, if we are going to serve God and we know that we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, that means we have to address the Holy Spirit in us. God, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you long for me? What is it that you have planned for me?